Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the podcast that brings you the week's most RNA amazing news in science. Oh wow, that was a bit forced. Yeah, it was a bit forced. Let, yeah, <laughs> the most amazing news in science. I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm our podcast editor. And I'm Tiffany O'Callaghan. I'm New Scientist Features Editor. This week, we're joined by New Scientist reporter Lyle Liverpool from Berlin and science writer and former New Scientist reporter Mike Marshall. Hi both. Hello. Hello. Coming up on the show, we've got an investigation into systemic racism. We've got living electrodes growing into an animal's brain. And we're discussing a new real-life version of The Very Hungry Caterpillar. Can't wait for that one. Um, we're also hearing about the mystery surrounding a 7 million-year-old fossil that could be the oldest known fossil in the human family. But before we get into all that, we wanted to remind you of a special offer available to you as a listener to our podcast. You can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist just by going to newscientist.com slash pod 20. Yes, that link will automatically give you the discount. You don't need a code. Just go to newscientist.com slash pod 20 and you'll get the money off when you subscribe. Right. Let's start with the voice of a legend. And sorry, Tiff, that's not you. <laughs> I'm just happy that anything I do can help somebody else. And when mm -hmm. I donated the money to the COVID fund, I just wanted it to do good. And evidently exactly it is. Let's just doing. hope we find a cure. Really? That, of course, was Dolly Parton on NBC. Uh, we can't play her music, but that's the next best thing. She's in the news because in April she gave a million dollars to support trials of the Moderna vaccine, which we now have just heard is nearly 95% effective against coronavirus. She was actually one of uh, many people who contributed to the effort, including Bill and Melinda Gates, who put in $350 million to help develop and distribute the COVID vaccines. That's right. Um, big shout out to Bill Gates. But sorry, Bill, your voice isn't as nice as Dolly's. Yeah, right, no way. Now, <laughs> we've had a lot of good news in the last week or so about coronavirus. And I spoke earlier to Anna Blackney. She's an RNA bioengineer at Imperial College London where they're testing an mRNA vaccine for COVID. She's in Colorado at the moment, and I spoke with her there. Anna, thanks for joining us. Now, uh, we've been worried for months that it might not even be possible to get a vaccine for SARS-CoV-2. But then just in the last week, we've had results from two vaccines showing remarkably high efficacy. And we've just had data showing that immunity seems to last a long time after having the disease. So uh, are you optimistic at the moment? 
Yeah, I think the results that we've gotten from both the Pfizer and BioNTech RNA vaccine, as well as the Moderna RNA vaccine, uh, with such high protection, so over 90%, is just really promising. I think the really great thing about RNA vaccines is they're able to be made and tested really quickly. Um, but since one hasn't been approved before, there was some question about whether they were actually going to work or not. So seeing that data has been really amazing. And I think just gives everybody a little bit of hope that um, we're actually going to have a vaccine, hopefully before we know it. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit more about how the mRNA vaccine works? Yeah, sure. So it's a relatively new technology. So obviously not a, a lot of people know about it yet. But it's important to kind of understand RNA in the context of a cell as well. So there's kind of three important biological molecules in your cell, DNA, RNA, and proteins. If you kind of think of it as a smartphone, DNA would be like the phone, it has all the instructions for everything. RNA would be like an app on your phone. So mail or pictures or Spotify or something. Yeah. And a protein would be the actual activity that you're doing on the phone. So writing an email or taking a picture. So we're essentially giving your cells an app to make the spike protein. So we're giving them the instructions to make a protein from the surface of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And that then activates your immune system and you have immunity to a virus that you haven't been exposed to. And so the imperial uh, vaccine that's in trial at the moment, that's also an mRNA vaccine, but that's a self-amplifying kind of one. Tell us what that means. Yeah, so self-amplifying RNA is just a special type of RNA. Uh, it works by when it gets into the cell, it's able to make copies of itself. So even if you introduce one molecule of RNA into the cell, it's able to make copies of itself. And this allows us to get a much higher level of that spike protein um, expressed. So this is advantageous in the context of a pandemic because it means um, we think that we can use a much lower dose of RNA. So as you're trying to scale up vaccines for billions of people around the world, um, if you can use you know, 10 or 100 fold lower dose, this means that from the same batch of RNA, you're able to make many more doses. Oh, now you mentioned that we haven't had RNA vaccines before. And now we've got the, the Pfizer-BioNTech one and the Moderna one. Well, and we've got your one that's that's being trialed, the imperial one. But is that um, is it coincidence that all these that suddenly we're getting lots of looking promising RNA vaccines? You know, for years we've um, done some work with CEPI, which is the Consortium for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, and they actually have funded other RNA vaccines as well. So we've been touting for years that they're kind of the perfect vaccine platform for a pandemic. And the reason for this is that they're made completely synthetically, and it's really easy to make a new one as long as we know the code of the protein that we need to express. So we're able to pivot and make a new vaccine really rapidly, which is why I think we're seeing all these RNA vaccines come online really quickly. So I think they're holding up to their reputation so far. Yeah. So as well as the mRNA vaccines for coronavirus, there are five other DNA vaccines that are in human trials. And then there's adenovirus vaccines. Can you t say something about the merits of, of these kinds? Or perhaps the, let's start with the DNA vaccines. Yeah, so DNA vaccines um, work in a similar way to RNA vaccines. You're introducing a gene into the cell. Similar to RNA vaccines, there's not any approved DNA vaccines as of yet. Um, and we actually have done some clinical trials in our lab with 
DNA vaccines historically. The main challenge is that to get a good immune response, you really need to electroporate it because you need to get it past two membranes in the cell. So it's actually quite hard to deliver. Um, and the electroporation is a, a device that you use to um, basically, after the injection, pass an electric current through, and this opens up the cell membranes and lets the DNA in. The caveat is that this means that you have to also distribute these devices and you have to have people trained on how to use them. So it kind of makes it just a little bit more logistically challenging. Um, right. It's not just a jab. Basically. Yeah, exa exactly. Yeah. So it, it requires a specialized piece of equipment. So that's obviously a barrier when you're trying to make billions of vaccines. For the adenovirus vaccines, um, these are also, yeah, they're kind of a more canonical vaccine. So we, we know that they typically work really well. So I think we'll start to see some good immune responses from, from that as well soon, hopefully. I think the main drawback with ad vaccines and all viral vectors is that you have to grow them in mammalian cell culture. So it requires a lot of resources and time to be able to do this. So theoretically, they just aren't able to scale up and produce them as quickly as an RNA or a DNA vaccine. So it's starting to look like all these different kinds of vaccines might work. Yeah. And one of the aspects of this is that there's obviously a lot of different delivery platforms for vaccines. So RNA, DNA, viral vectors. But something that also plays a big part is just the what we call the immunogenicity of the antigen, um, which is so the antigen is the spike protein on the surface of the virus. And the immunogenicity of that is just how well it triggers an immune response. So all proteins um, kind of trigger a it's a range of uh, immune responses that they're able to trigger. Um, and so what we've seen just from in our studies uh, in our preclinical work was that it's quite a potent antigen. So this gives kind of all the different vaccine platforms um, a head start in, in making a good vaccine, if that makes sense. And I guess it was always likely that if one vaccine worked, if we could get a vaccine, then we'd be able to get lots of different kinds of vaccines. And that's, um, and we, that's what we need. You know, if if we start to get emergency approval for some of these, when do you think we're going to be able to get the first doses out to, you know, healthcare workers and vulnerable people? Yeah, given the data that we've seen from, you know, Pfizer and BioNTech and Moderna um, with it, such high protection, I would be surprised if they didn't receive emergency use authorization. And from the reports that I saw, they said they'll be able to make um, millions of vaccines this year. So I, you know, if we get a vaccine by the end of the year, that would be great. Now, the other problem that we have to address is what people are calling vaccine hesitancy. What the WHO says is, is vaccine hesitancy. So that's the 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 growing. Well, I don't want to overstate it, but there's there's a fear among of of a vaccine uptake, isn't there, that the public are going to not want to take the stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So I've actually been involved in a new UN initiative called Team Halo, which is a group of scientists who are all working on COVID-19 vaccines from all over the world. So we have scientists in Brazil, the US, South Africa, Qatar, UAE. It's quite global. And the idea is to connect these scientists directly to the general public through TikTok, which at <laughs> first glance seems like a really silly platform to do it. But um, it's really cool because we can show people what we actually do in the lab, how we make vaccines, how we test them, and then have really good conversations um, about, you know, how do we know it's safe? Is it a rushed vaccine? And I think... Um, 
from what I've seen from interacting with with people on TikTok is that people have a lot of questions and they are skeptical, but I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, scientists are also taught to be, you know, critical and skeptical until we say that, see the data and we're able to interpret it and make a conclusion. But a lot of times the general public doesn't get to see that data or doesn't know how to interpret it. And so they're relying on, you know, what someone is telling them. So it's really cool to be able to just have conversations with people. And I think it's much more of a, a gray area than being pro-vax or anti-vax. I think people just have a lot of questions and they don't generally have an outlet to, uh, you know, unless they know a scientist, they don't generally have an outlet to ask those questions too. Maybe we should get Dolly Parton on TikTok. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> And so going back to the mRNA vaccine at Imperial College, when is that started its phase three trials yet? So we're still in phase two of our clinical trials. Um, we are planning on starting our phase three in January. I think something to keep in mind is that even as these vaccines are approved for use, it doesn't mean they're going to be available immediately. It still takes time to make them and also distribute them, which is going to be its own logistical challenge. So we're still probably going to have a while before everybody has access to vaccines. But the fact that we're getting really good data from the phase three clinical trials is super promising. That is great stuff. It is really all starting to sound very positive. But yes, we do have to get through the next few months first. I saw Anna has done a nine to five vaccine homage to Dolly Parton on TikTok. <laughs> yeah, we'll tweet that TikTok from at New Scientist Pod. That's our sci-fi alert, which means we've got something in the mag that's already been in science fiction. Rowan, what is it this week? Uh, this is a brain upgrade. Oh, just what you've been waiting for. <laughs> yeah, well, OK, it's not quite a brain upgrade. Maybe I'm jumping the gun a bit here, but, but it is a way to merge the brain with computers. OK, well, a few months ago, we did cover that Neuralink brain implant that Elon Musk was uh, so excited about, didn't we? Yeah, we did. That was, a, that was an electrode, a conventional electrode that goes in the skull. But the news this week is from a different group. Uh, this is at the University of Pennsylvania. And they've made living electrodes. Ooh, wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, all right. But what are living electrodes? Right. Well, they're, they're real neurons that have been genetically modified to respond to light. Uh, and they've been in, now implanted into the brains of rats. And the idea is that eventually they'll provide a better and longer lasting way to link brains with computers than conventional electrodes. Wow, that is absolutely amazing that we can just talk about linking brains with computers like this. Yeah, yeah. So, the, yeah, the modified neurons grow into the brain and then you control them with light. So then you'd put like an LED on the skull to shine through and shine light onto the implant. Yeah, and that's how you can turn the neurons on and off. So it's very early stages. But the key thing is that these neurons grow into the brain. So you have that connection. Wow. Okay, so what's the sci-fi link here? Actually, wait, before you say, Rowan, I know Mike is also a really big sci-fi fan. So, Mike, what do you think the science fiction link might be? Well, the whole thing of like linking human brains to computers just immediately reminds me of the Borg from Star Trek, although I think that's partly because <laughs> we've been re-watching all the Star Trek films in lockdown. But um, the fact that it's living electrodes rather than you know, things made of wires, I hate to say this, this actually kind of reminds me of Avatar, the James Cameron film where all the animals can be like linked by these sort of weird neural cable things. I, I, yeah, I yeah, that's, a, that's that. a great one. Actually, I didn't think that. Um, I was going with the 
classic Japanese manga Ghost in the Shell uh, by Masamune Shiro. Uh, and that was also that was made into another a classic movie by Mamoru Oshii. Uh, and it's all about the consequences of the intertwining of humans and technology and the, the cybernetic enhancement of humans and having memory prosthetics. And that's where we're going. Time out. Time to tell you about an exciting new development in the New Scientist world. Yeah, this is the New Scientist Academy. It's now open for students. Science courses for everyone. This is our new line of expertly curated online courses to allow you to learn from top scientists about the hottest topics in science. The first course is now live. It's called The Biggest Mysteries of the Cosmos. Go to newscientist.com slash courses to find out more. It's a specially tailored course, including video tutorials, interactive diagrams, and lots of reading resources, plus opportunities for you to test your progress. You can learn at your leisure, anywhere and anytime. The Biggest Mysteries of the Cosmos is live now, and How the Brain Works and How to Make the Most of It is launching in December. Go to newscientist.com slash courses to find out more and to qualify for an introductory rate. Next up talking about systemic racism. This year, we've seen mass protests against racism in the explosion of the Black Lives Matter movement into mainstream awareness. Lyle, you've just done a piece in which you spoke to researchers who study systemic racism. Yeah, so a lot of the work is in the US, although a lot of the concepts that they study are relevant to other countries, uh, since racism, of course, exists all over the world um, and has sadly been baked into everything from education to employment to healthcare, uh, and even the technology, the algorithms that uh, influence our lives on a day-to-day basis. You have more in-depth interviews in the magazine this week, but can you give us a flavor of of what some of those conversations were like? Yeah, sure. So one of the researchers I spoke to, uh, Daphne Henry at Boston College in Massachusetts, she's researching the intersection between race and ethnicity and socioeconomic status in the U.S. So she told me that previous studies have found that black children in the U.S. tend to get lower st- scores in reading and mathematics tests compared to white children. But she had noticed that in a lot of studies of academic achievement, the majority of the participants from lower income families were also from ethnic minority groups, whereas the majority who were middle income or above were white. So that makes it really difficult to tease apart what the effects are that are linked to race and ethnicity versus socioeconomic status. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, she said she tried to separate these effects in her own work. And what she found is that higher socioeconomic status is associated with a boost in children's academic achievement in general. So children from wealthier families tend to perform better in tests at school. But the size of this boost actually differs between black and white children. Oh, wow. How so? So as family socioeconomic status increases, the achievement gap between black and white children actually appears to grow, she told me. Okay, so rich black kids don't do as well as rich white kids because of racism and because of how society inherently favours white kids. Um, Saying that I'm painfully aware that I'm an inherently favoured white kid. Right. And uh, Daphne Henry said this really challenges one of the foundational principles for work that examines these kind of disparities, that if you just eliminate socioeconomic disparities, you just get rid of them among African-American families, then that should close the achievement gap. Whereas Henry's work suggests that this doesn't quite capture the full story and more will need to be done to tackle racism in particular, in addition to looking at other factors like socioeconomic status. Yeah, so it's it's much more complicated, isn't it? And can you tell us a little bit more about um, some of the other topics you, you spoke about with the researchers? 
Yeah, so um, Michelle Evans is a medical researcher at the National Institutes of Health, uh, and she's been investigating social determinants of health. So these are social factors that put certain groups of people at an increased risk of disease. And race is very much a social construct, uh, of course, rather than a biological one. And yet because of systemic racism and other factors, we do see differences in health outcomes between people from different ethnic backgrounds. So just uh, as an example, I was recently looking at the UK report on black people, racism and human rights. And one of the statistics they highlight is that the death rate for black women in childbirth is five times higher than for white women in the UK. Uh, Some people may have heard the statistics. It's been known for a while, but every time I see that figure, I just think it's so shocking. It really sticks in my mind. Uh, And the figure is also similar in the US. Yeah, that, that is really shocking. So is that because black women just don't get as good care because they're black? I think it's complicated would be like the short answer. I think there are a lot of factors that might contribute, like social and economic factors, uh, unconscious bias by healthcare providers and so on. Uh, The UK report that I mentioned actually says something about it. It says uh, the NHS acknowledge and regret this disparity, but have no target to end it. So I think there's definitely room for improvement there in terms of investigating the disparity and trying to tackle this. Evans has studied this health gap between black and white people in the U.S. in particular um, and found that it extends to diseases as well. So from chronic kidney disease to dementia, with black people in particular consistently experiencing worse outcomes. And as we've reported on uh, in the magazine as well, we've seen these big health inequalities really being uh, exacerbated and highlighted by the pandemic as well. Yeah, absolutely. I was also looking at this for new scientists. So in in the US, UK and elsewhere, people from black, Asian and other ethnic minority backgrounds are at an increased risk of uh, getting sick with the coronavirus and dying from COVID-19. And work by Evans and other researchers has even started looking at whether experiencing racism itself may harm our health. So she told me about a study that was invo- uh, that she was involved in, which found correlation between people's perceived lifetime discrimination burden. So that's the racism they've experienced during their lifetime and the volume of white matter lesions in their brains. So white matter lesion volume is an early indicator of cognitive decline in Alzheimer's related dementia. So racism literally wears people down. Yeah, perhaps. Uh, But she also pointed out that a lot of this research on health disparities is very much in its infancy because adequate data on ethnic minorities is missing in many cases. And we know that people from ethnic minority backgrounds are often underrepresented in research, in genetic studies and clinical trials, for instance. You you get into a lot of these very complicated issues in your piece about, you know, systemic racism is baked into so many aspects of society. And uh, one of the most recent to emerge, I suppose, is how it's baked into our, our technology as well. Yeah. So one example is uh, facial recognition uh, systems. So Amazon's facial recognition system, for example, uh, called recognition with a K. Uh, a study found it was failing to accurately recognize the faces of darker skinned women 30 percent of the time, for example, The consequences of this can really be devastating. So earlier this year, a black man, I believe his name was Robert Williams. He was wrongfully arrested in Michigan after he was incorrectly identified as a criminal by facial recognition software. Yeah, clearly we have such such a long way to go. Um, Thanks, Lyall. Um, Do check out that piece in the magazine this week, which explores five big ways that systemic racism affects society. Okay, now changing gears quite dramatically from something uh, quite serious um, to something much more silly. Um, Now it's time for Life Form of the Week, where we highlight an animal that we're feeling the love for. 
Rowan, what is it this week? In the light of the moon, a little egg lay on the leaf. Um, hello? Pop! Out of the leaf came a <laughs> tiny and very hungry caterpillar. Oh my goodness, it is not bedtime, man. What are we talking about here? No, yeah, that's, uh, as you know, that's the start of Eric Carle's children's classic, The Very Hungry Caterpillar. Yes, I do know very well. Yeah, yeah, well, it's sold more than 30 million copies. Yes, and that's lovely, and congratulations to Eric Carle, <laughs> but what on earth does that have to do with anything? Well, um, I, I wonder if Eric Carle based his caterpillar on uh, the caterpillar of the monarch butterfly. Uh, they're perhaps the you know, the best known butterfly in the US um, and in the whole of North America. Uh, And they're famous for their massive winter migrations that, you know, they fly 3000 miles, some of them, Uh, a butterfly flying that far. But less is known about the caterpillar. And as it turns out, they get very aggressive as well as getting very hungry. Okay, now I don't remember that bit, the violence from the uh, the children's <laughs> book. <laughs> no, uh, perhaps it wasn't entirely biologically accurate. I mean, it turns out that if there are other caterpillars around, a monarch caterpillar starts to headbutt them, becomes really aggressive if they get in its way, and they get more aggressive the closer they are to turning into a butterfly. Well, so are you uh, are you thinking about teaming up with Eric Carle to write a sequel about you know the headbutting, very violent caterpillar? Yeah, definitely, I should. Um, <laughs> but this is all from a new study in Florida that shows that monarch caterpillars attack other feeding caterpillars, but not other resting caterpillars. Ah, oh, so there's sort of some some rules of engagement there. <laughs> yeah, the researchers say that the these hungry, aggressive caterpillars are trying to claim the food source for themselves. So, but. Before you said that you thought Eric Carle based his original Hungry Caterpillar on Monarch, on the Monarch Butterfly, were you just making that up? Is that a guess? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it was actually. But, you know, Carle <laughs> you know, wanted, he originally wanted to make it about a bookworm, actually, but his editor thought that was too horrible uh, an image. You know, but monarchs are so widespread across North America, I thought it was quite likely that Carle would have seen them. I love this story because I really relate to these caterpillars getting angry when they're hungry (laughs) (laughs) we can all relate to that i'm surprised you didn't you didn't call it the very angry caterpillar (laughs) (laughs) now it's time for great moments in evolution this is the point in the show where we highlight new understanding about some critical point in our planetary and biological history Mike, you've got a story this week on one of the most critical times in human evolution, when our lines split off from the one that became chimps. So this happened around 7 million years ago, but there's a controversial story around it, isn't there? Yes, there is. It all centers around uh, a fossil called Sahelanthropus chadensis, which was discovered in Chad in 2001. And this is has long been thought to be the oldest known example of a hominin, so a bipedal ape-like creature that's related to us and that isn't on the line that that gave rise to other chim- to other apes like chimpanzees. This is supposed to be on in our group. And so, what's the controversy now? So the controversy is over whether it really was bipedal, whether it really walked on two legs, uh, which is kind of crucial because if it didn't walk on on two legs, that probably means it isn't a hominin because that's part of our definition of what makes a hominin is that it's it's upright. So when Sahelanthropus was discovered, it was was described as essentially um, head bone, so a skull and a bit of jaw and and some teeth. But it has since emerged that a femur, so a leg bone, was also found at the same time. 
And the scientists who have studied that are claiming that it's it doesn't look like it's a the, the leg bone of a bipedal animal at all. It looks more like an African ape, like a chimpanzee, which would imply that Sahelanthropus didn't walk on two legs at all. So that would mean that it was not the original member of the human family. It would indeed imply that, yeah. It, it might mean that it, yeah, it's more related to something like a chimp, in which case the, the question of how our family emerged and even where it emerged is still quite wide open you know Sahelanthropus is seven million years old the next youngest hominin is fully six million years old so you know a whole million years younger and that one's called aurorin and it is bipedal everyone seems to be quite clear about that but there's this huge gap going you know for a couple of million years that we don't really understand what was going on Mike do we know why there's such a gap of fossils in this period you know why is there such a paucity of fossils here um, some of it, I think, is partly just to do with Africa not having been explored enough. Um, you know, there are obviously large areas of Africa that have been quite difficult and dangerous for paleoanthropologists to go into at one time or another. And also there are large areas that are covered in tropical rainforest. And it's quite possible that, you know, the hominins or their ancestors were living in those places, but we just haven't um, been able to excavate there yet. You know, most of the fossils that are known are from places like the Rift Valley uh, in East Africa, which is, you know, quite dry and quite open. And it's, I don't want to say it's easy to find fossils there, but it's easier than if you're in a dense rainforest. So you explore this latest development in a lot more detail in your new newsletter, right, Mike? Yep, that's right. It's called Our Human Story. And if you go to newscientist.com slash sign hyphen up slash our hyphen human hyphen story, you can sign up now. The first issue will be next week and then it will be monthly. And it's all Yeah, free. that's right. It is all free. Uh, it's Mike's new monthly newsletter all about the evolution and prehistory of the human species. We'll put a link... That, that long link into the show notes and we'll tweet a link from at New Scientist Pod to that. So do go on and check it out and sign up. Uh, also check out Mike's excellent new book, The Genesis Quest, which is all about the search for the origin of life itself. Oh, thank you. That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us, Mike and Lyall from Berlin and Anna Blackley from Colorado. And thanks to all of you for listening. One other thing to mention, in this week's magazine, we explore the latest on what's happening with all of the vaccine candidates against COVID-19. Yeah, that's right. It's a massive must-read vaccine special this week. But that's it for the podcast. Remember, as a podcast listener, you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist by going to newscientist.com slash pod20. And in the meantime, do spread the word about our show. Goodbye for now. Bye. Bye. This podcast is produced by Oli Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.